Amen. Well, thank you, Janice, uh, for that prayer. And my name is Seth Mangum, and it's my honor and privilege this morning to just open God's Word with you. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 27. And, uh, you know, as I've been reflecting on this psalm over the last few weeks, uh, the theme that came out is be strong and wait. Uh, there's so much in this passage that we can relate to this morning, and it's still as relevant today as ever. I don't know about you, but over the last few months, I've been reflecting a lot about the lessons of the crisis and the lessons that God has for us during this time of crisis. Uh, for the first few months, I actually took a journal online, a little devotional online, and just sort of wrote down some of the things that I was learning to, to give to my students at Plumstead Christian School. And a few of the highlights I'm sure you could relate to um, were that God is with us still, that the Bible is uh, familiar with crisis. God's word is familiar with crisis. And that our plans are fragile. And our world is fragile. Of all the lessons, those were the ones that really stood out to me over the last few months. And yet everyone is experiencing this crisis in many different ways. And we're all feeling it in different ways. With all this context and all this happening in our lives, we need the Psalms. We need God's word, and we are desperate for him in our time of crisis. Let me pray as we open into Psalm 27. Father God, we are desperate for you this morning and desperate for your word. We need hope. We need strength that only comes from you. I pray, Lord, that this morning you would speak through your word to us, that you would speak through me and to me um, as I share the lessons from this wonderful passage and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. If not, um, I won't deduct any points or anything for, for taking out a cell phone if you have your cell phone Bibles as well. Uh, but as I said, we're going to be in Psalm 27. And I just wanted to start off by reading it uh, for you. Psalm 27, it says, and this is a psalm of David. It doesn't really give us any more context than that. Some of the other psalms, they give you a little bit of a highlight ahead of that, but... Not this one. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war breaks out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me on a high rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your ways, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. 
I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So during the last few months, I've, I've really reflected a lot about fear. I know there are many fears uh, stirring in our lives. And I don't know what your greatest fear is. Some people are afraid of the dark. I'm not really too afraid of the dark. Some people, they get really scared just being in the dark. I think it's kind of peaceful. I don't know. But there was this one time that I went on a trip to Canada with a bunch of my college buddies. And we were up in the woods. I don't even know where it was. That's how, that's how like, just trusting I was of my friends. I just went along for the ride. And I said, okay, sure, I'll go to Canada with you guys. And we're going to camp out there for how long? About a week. And we were out there in uh, the middle of the night. And one of those nights that we were out there in the pitch black darkness, we started hearing a rustling in the woods. And we caught up, we looked around, we found, oh my goodness, what we have discovered is a black bear. Now it's a black bear, it's not a grizzly bear, so it's a little bit less scary. Uh, it wasn't really even that size, that's, I don't know, probably a full-size black bear, but it was, a, it was a younger black bear. The only thing is, though, what kept going on in the back of my mind was, usually when there's a younger black bear, there's typically another bear nearby, right? So I was pretty scared. Um, but, you know, like young men as we were, we decided we're going to just scare this thing off, we're going to throw some rocks at it, and, uh, you know, eventually, like strong men, we just kind of scared this bear away and we felt pretty good about ourselves but here's the thing the fear of that bear got into my psyche in a way that I wasn't really aware of so that night we all stood up and we kept watch right we took turns and we didn't sleep in the tents that night we slept in the truck and every once in a while there would be a guy that got up and he'd wake us all up and say there's I think it's a bear I think it's a bear and oh it was just a twig it was just a squirrel it was just a bird it was nothing well the next night I kid you not we're in the middle of the tent, and we actually decided we're going to sleep in the tent again. We started to feel a little bit more calm. We didn't see any bears the next day. But we're sleeping in the tent, and I sat up from my sleep. And right all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, as we were all asleep, sound asleep, I screamed, Bear! As loud as I could, and there was no bear. But you can imagine my friends in the tent with me, they started freaking out. They started, they started screaming. I was screaming. They started scaring me. I, we were all just terrified. There was no bear there, but we were terrified. And that's how a lot of our fears really are. I mean, there's a real danger. There are bears in the woods, right? There is a true danger that we should be afraid of. But sometimes the way that we react can, can either make it worse or sometimes the fear that we have uh, in our lives or in our, in our minds just heightens it even more than the reality that we're facing. Well, Psalm 27 is all about this real faith amidst real fear. That God is not unaware of real dangers in life, real fears, right? Like there's a lot of things in our life that we rightly would be afraid of. And God knows these things, and David knows these things, and that's the context. Um, like I mentioned when we entered into this psalm, we're not really sure exactly what David was facing when he wrote this psalm. But we can imagine he might have been on the run from Saul. He might have been in the middle of the wilderness writing this. He was probably by himself. He was probably alone in the dark. He was probably... Um, reflecting on a lot of real fears. There could have been an army of people coming just around the corner to stop him and kill him at any moment. Real fears for real reasons. And that's where he writes this psalm. 
Just to give you a little overview of of this uh, passage, it's only 14 verses that we just read, and it starts off with a confidence in God despite real fears. He kind of makes a smack talk statement about how how God is bigger and how God is, is better, and so who should I be afraid of? Why would I be afraid of you? I've got God on my side. He boasts, but not just in himself, not just in his strength, not just for his fighting abilities, though he had a lot of fighting abilities. No, he boasts in God. Then he prays about safe dwelling with the Lord. He desires more than anything else to dwell with the Lord, to tabernacle, to have community, to have communion in fellowship with the Lord. Then, I don't know if you noticed this, but the personal pronouns, they switch and they start to turn personal. He starts to pray directly to God in verses 7 through 12. And he says this personal prayer to God that he would be near, that he wouldn't turn away, and that he would save him. And then in verses 13 to 14, he makes his, conf- his concluding confidence, his statements of his confidence in the goodness of God. Now, as we enter into this psalm, it's good to remember what a psalm is, right? A psalm is typically a poem or a song that would have been sung in Israel's history. We're not exactly sure about the melodies anymore. Uh, many of the songs that we sing still in church today come from the songs of Scripture as well. So we're pretty familiar with that. But as you enter into a psalm, it's really important to maybe read this psalm with three perspectives in mind. The first perspective is to imagine David and his context. Imagine the original author's context as he's writing. We don't really know the whole thing, but like I said, we have a few clues from the history of of David and from the history of Israel that we can maybe put together some of the, the puzzle pieces of where this was written. The second perspective is for us, for the church, to consider how did these words reflect our situation? What of these words can I pray Sure, we can, we can relate to most of this, but is there really an army besieging me? Is there an army encamped around me? Not necessarily, but in some ways, yeah. Right? So there's two perspectives. And then the third perspective that I never want to miss whenever we're studying any passage of Scripture is to consider what does this passage have to do with Jesus? Where does Jesus show up in this psalm? Maybe as you read it here, you, you didn't hear anything about Jesus here in this psalm. But there are a few Nuggets, a few highlights where we can see that Jesus is ultimately the goal of this psalm. Jesus is ultimately the the true uh, resolution and the true fulfillment of this psalm. So three perspectives, David, the church, and Jesus. I also like to consider psalms and proverbs as great devotional passages to read from throughout your daily life. That's actually how they were designed to be read. Uh, you know, wisdom literature like, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they were meant to be taken on a regular basis. Some passages in Scripture, though you can read your morning devos in 2 Samuel, you can read your morning devos in Chronicles, and that's perfectly fine. You just are missing maybe some of the context that comes with some of those sections of Scripture, and the narrative history doesn't always apply as quickly as some of these devotional passages really do apply quickly. So I don't know about you, but for me over the last few months, I've really enjoyed reading a psalm and a proverb every day. And an easy way to do it is even to look at the date, right? It's August 16th today. A great place to read might be Psalm 16 and Proverbs 16. That doesn't always work out because there's more psalms than that. But you can always find a scripture passage to relate to each day. And those are very devotional passages that you can can really learn about God. 
I think that we need some of those helpful tools and helpful devotional studies while we've been on our own, right? A lot of people at home this morning that are studying in their own way, in their own homes, and we need God's word more than ever. So right off the beginning here in verses 1 to 3, David makes his confident statements despite real fears. He says that the Lord is his light, that God is his salvation, and that God is a stronghold. He makes this confident boast against fear. And there are real fears that might be entering in the author's mind as he's writing this. But imagine these pictures of of who God is amidst the real fear. He's light. He shines in the darkness. No matter how dark it is, do you know that light always wins over darkness? Now, he says salvation. And this is an important word in this passage to, to really highlight in the scriptures, because any time that the word salvation or saved is used in scripture, especially in the Old Testament where it's often used, it's the word Yeshua. And it's a combination of two words. And it's also a name, a very familiar name, Yeshua. It's Yahweh's salvation. Yah, that beginning, Yah, and then Shua, salvation. So the salvation of Yahweh is the name Joshua, which is later anglicized uh, from the Greek as Yesu or Jesus. So his very name, Jesus, his very name, Yeshua, is in this passage. And ultimately, David says, God, you are my Yeshua. God, you bring your Yeshua, bring your salvation into my life. Isn't it beautiful that, you know, 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, David can write these prayers to the Lord that have to do with Jesus, our Savior. When I think of a stronghold, I think of pictures like this. You know, many churches were actually designed, uh, especially medieval-style churches, uh, and some of our modern churches pick up on some of these same things. Even this church building here is pretty similar in its, you know, general shape. It has a steeple out front. Why do we have that? Well, a lot of these architectural designs and and engineering were, were to kind of point to biblical truths, theological truths about God. When you enter into this sanctuary, even the name sanctuary, right, it's a place of safety. When you enter in, you recognize almost immediately the presence of safety, the presence of refuge. Uh, In medieval times, the church would have literally been the place to find health care and spiritual comfort. Most of your actual life needs would be met at the sanctuary, at the church, uh, with a pastor or priest there to welcome you in. And so our church building itself is even designed to remind us that God is a stronghold. God, being with God, is a place of strength. It's true that in our weakness we are strong. It's true that in our brokenness there's a paradox that in Jesus' brokenness he was also displaying great strength. But I've definitely felt in this time of crisis that I need a refuge to go to in my time of need. Where is your refuge this morning? Many refuges of our life today are being broken and shattered all around us. The refuge of financial security, right? The the refuge of health, right? A lot of these things are being broken down. David doesn't say, Jesus or Lord, you are my bringer of salvation, or you are the one who are going, you're going to bring salvation to me. Instead, he says, no, God, you are my salvation. Your very name is salvation. 
And he says, though the wicked advance against him to devour him. Listen to that language. He's saying, like, there's people that are going to destroy me. There's people that are pursuing me that are going to wreck my life. He has real things to be afraid of. Enemies, foes, armies besieging him. Possibly there's war even breaking out. And yet he still says, I'm still confident. It's like despite everything I see around me. Is he just a happy-go-lucky optimist? I don't think so. Is he being unrealistic? No. He sees that even through death and destruction of his life, even through that he can be confident because our God is above those things. I love how David and other scripture passages use what I would call like spiritual smack talk. Right? It's like Paul and Hosea, Paul quotes Hosea in Hosea 13, 14, uh, when he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Can you imagine that literally talking to death? That's what he's doing. Where, death, is your victory? Where's your sting, death? That's just weird. I don't usually talk like that about death or about fear. But it's a biblical thing, right? David's like, where is your victory? My victory is in God alone. No matter what we fear, we can boast bravely in our Lord. And my God is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know he is going to win. We need that reminder, especially when we look around us amidst the crisis and we feel like everything is falling apart. I still have confidence. I still have faith that the Lord will win. So real fears are overcoming the author's life. What about for you? I thought about putting a couple scary pictures up there, but sometimes what we don't see is even more scary than what we do see. So what are the fears that you have in your life? There's some legitimate fears for sure. Fear of losing a loved one, fear of losing our own health, fear of cultures that we don't understand. There's literally a war on terror, right? It's been going on since 2001. A war on terror. No wonder today the statistics, I've been in youth ministry now since high school and I've gotten the opportunity to read many books and statistics about young people today. It's no wonder that young people today are suffering from anxiety and stress and fears, deep-seated fears in their lives more and more in our culture today. It's because there's real fears out there. There's real things um, that, are, that they're facing. But even though there's much to fear in life, I believe our walk of faith is much like this psalm. He doesn't just say, when you have faith, you don't have any fear anymore, and you just sort of get over it, like hunker down and just grit your teeth and you'll be fine. But even David goes back and forth a little bit, doesn't he? He makes this confident boast at the beginning, and then he starts to express some of his fears in his personal prayer. And then when you just look at all of the psalms laced together, some of them, they end with such sadness or fear. Most of the psalms are lament, right? So I believe it's okay for us to have a journey of faith that there's going to be fears that come up in our lives, but there are also these moments where we have a fresh perspective where we can see our hope in the Lord. And today, I just want to make sure that we see the hope of the Lord, that there is hope even though there's a crisis. And this 
fear or this confidence that we have despite our fears is not this wishy-washy false confidence that I'm seeing in our culture today all the time. I was at the store the other day. I know that's controversial, but I was at the store the other day, and uh, I'll, just let, I'll just put it out there. It was American Eagle. They're the only store, for whatever reason, that has jeans that fit me. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's made for teens. I don't get it. But I was in this store, and I saw a bunch of colognes, and these are the names of the colognes. I don't know if you can actually read it from there, but here are the names of the colognes. Break free. Do anything. Fear nothing. Get love. Like, that is just such a perfect picture of false confidence, don't you think? Like, oh, if I just spray this probably really bad teenage-smelling cologne on me all over my body, then I won't have any fear anymore. Like, thank you, no fear. And I think a lot of our culture today is really projecting this on everything. It's like, don't be afraid. You can do anything you want. You're stronger than the storm. You're, you're bigger than this. There's nothing to be afraid of. That's just false confidence. And I don't want to be a happy-go-lucky. Everything's fine. We go to church and we just smile through everything because we're, we're happy people. But I believe that the, tr- the truth of Jesus and the hope of Jesus is much deeper than that. The hope of Christ is not a cologne that you spray on your body, that you wear on the outside to make yourself fear, feel better. It's so much deeper. It's the hope of life after death. It's the hope of salvation. It's the hope of everything that Dave mentioned. And that's just the start from the book of Revelation about the promise of the future that we have, about the kingdom of God taking over this broken and fallen world. It's the hope that that's real. And that we're going to see it with our own eyes. Don't you think that makes a difference in our lives today? Not a happy-go-lucky false confidence. And I think a lot of preachers are preaching that way today too. A lot of preachers today are sounding a lot more like motivational speakers than people who point to Scripture and say, look at what David is saying his confidence really is. Look at where our trust and where our hope really is. It's not in ourselves. It's not in a better day. It's in our Lord Jesus Christ. And all that he's done. It's in our God. Who is bigger than what we can possibly imagine. The last few months have given a lot of secret benefits of time with the Lord personally. And he's built my hope and my faith. One of the, one of the secret special lessons I've felt that I've received is that God is with us no matter what. I long to be back in the house of the Lord. I long to be back in his sanctuary together in a congregation like this where we're together assembling to worship God. But one of the lessons I've realized is God is there no matter what. And he's with us. He's with you at home. He's with us here. And he's with us in our times of worship, our personal prayers like David, who's probably by himself out in the woods. But he's also here with us in our congregation too. Now David, in the middle section here in verses 4 to 6, he actually says, the one thing I ask from the Lord, this one thing that I do seek. And then he also goes on and lists several things. So when he says this one thing that I seek, it's probably better to maybe think of this as the first priority that I seek of the Lord is this, that I may dwell, that I may tabernacle in the house of God, of the house of the Lord, all the days of my life. 
Now, don't miss this here. When David says, all the days of my life, notice what he's not doing. He's not just saying, the one thing that I long for is to escape this world forever and enter into heaven where I can finally be free from these whiny people and all these conflicts. He doesn't actually say that. What his hope is, sounds too optimistic, right? His hope is that he will dwell in the house of the Lord where? The days of his life. All the days of his life. Now, when David says this, interestingly enough, the temple of Solomon, it hasn't been built yet, right? That's, his, that's later on. And so what David is thinking of is a temple that doesn't even exist yet. Maybe he's thinking of the tabernacle of Moses, you know, the tent where God dwelled. Or maybe he's thinking of he's got the blueprints in his mind and he would just love to build God's house, but it's not for him to do. Either way, what he's looking forward to more than anything else is that he's going to dwell with the Lord in his house. I can relate to that. We're promised a room in God's house. Remember, Jesus says that to his disciples. He says, why would I tell you this if it weren't true? That there's a house reserved for you in God's kingdom. What a beautiful promise to remember when some of us are, are losing house and home here on earth. He describes God's house, by the way, in this section as a house, a temple, a safe dwelling place, a shelter, a sacred tent, and a rock. Man, that sounds like a good house. I like to watch Chip and Joanna Gaines in their show Fixer Upper just as much as the next guy. And I think that maybe part of that show and part of our desire in our hearts is actually a desire for what God's going to do in eternity. He's going to build a house. He's going to build that home that we've always wanted, that we've always longed for. You know, everything on this earth rusts and decays, and we've all longing, we're all longing for a place that we can really truly dwell in peace. Even the name Jerusalem is the city of shalom, the city of peace. That's what God is bringing into our world. That's the hope that we have. At the end of verse 6, he says that he will sacrifice with shouts of joy. He will sing and make music to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of at-home worship sessions over the last few months. And for, you know, my home sessions, I'm shouting out to the Lord sometimes. And I just have really enjoyed that. I encourage you now to reflect on this, that you can go home, you can sing songs to the Lord, you can shout his praises at any point. And he looks forward, David looks forward to the day that he will be in God's house and he will be able to shout and sing to the Lord for the rest of his days. I long for that too. It reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. He actually says at the beginning of that book that it's really a luxury that many Christians are used to being together in a large congregation. When he wrote Life Together, he was facing Nazi Germany and most of the Christian churches were starting to scatter all around him and they were only having small house churches where they would meet with small groups of people and he starts to reflect on that and say, you know what, this is the life of a missionary, isn't it? The life of a missionary Christian that it would just be amazing to see another Christian somewhere, wouldn't it? Say, oh my gosh, you're a Christian too? We're out here in the middle of, you know, North Africa or, or another place where it's just not as common to see Christians like wow another Christian but we're used to that we're used to large gatherings David looks forward to the day where he will see that group assemble together and worship the Lord again 
In verses 7 to 12 is when he begins his personal prayer. Again, look at the pronouns. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. He's directly talking to the Lord here in this section. He seeks the Lord's face. I remember back in, I think it was October, Dr. Dunbar uh, had a whole sermon on the God who is with us, but a whole sermon on what it means to seek the face of the Lord, to seek his intimate presence. There are so many passages that in their prayers, in their intimate prayers, what they say is, Lord, I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. I want to be with you like I can talk to a family member or a friend. Loving relationship. And that's what David prays for here. He actually requests attention. You know, he doesn't assume that he's going to get God's attention. And he calls God his helper and his savior. He says, do not reject me or forsake me, God my savior. Such a humble prayer. And he goes on in verses 10 to 12. And he says that he's been rejected by those who are closest to him. There's conflict in his life. He desires teaching from the Lord so that he'll be led on the straight path to safety. When he talks about the straight path, he's not just talking about excluding others. He's talking about, Lord, you need to direct my path because if I go my own way, I might meet the enemy. It reminds me again of of another story. When I was in Haiti uh, a few years ago, uh, we had to sort of flee from one hotel to another because of a conflict that rose and some riots that rose at one of our hotels. And we literally prayed a prayer that was just like this. We said, Lord, I need you to direct our path. We have a group of, you know, 20 people. We need you to direct our path because we don't want to go the wrong way. When you're out in the wilderness wandering in life, and some of you probably feel like that right now, right? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We're making our plans and they're falling apart. And we need this prayer. We need to say, Lord, direct us on the straight path, the path to safety, the path to salvation. There are many ways to respond to this crisis right now. And Lord, we need your way. We need your way above all else. And he also adds in this, which I think we can relate to now too, he has a lot of people that are making a lot of false accusations about him and malicious talkers. These are some real things to actually fear, right? There's some real difficulties, some real challenges. He's not just saying life is good because I have the Lord. He's saying, Lord, help me walk on the straight path while all of these real life challenges are happening. So if we were to take this prayer... And I encourage you, we're going to spend a minute or two to actually, to pray through this. To think about each of these things that he prays for. And we're going to ask the Lord, just like David did, uh, throughout this prayer. He says, hear us, be merciful, do not hide your face from us. These words are just as relevant today as ever, right? Please do not turn us away in your wrath. We need you. Save us, Jesus. Salvation, Yeshua. Teach us your way in this time of crisis. Protect us from division, from lies and malice that stirs up in the time of conflict. Protect us from division. I'm going to pray through this section here. And then I just have a few more reflections just on the, on the last few verses here where David makes his final point. But why don't we actually just, I just want to take a few minutes here to just spend some time, not just talking about God and his word, but actually spend time with God in this section together. So I encourage you to, if you're at home or if you're here, just have this section open in front of you um, and let's pray.
Lord God, hear us. We call to you in our time of need. We make our plans and they fall apart. We look to you. Be merciful, Lord. There are many things that we've done that deserve discipline as a culture, as a country, and just as people. Individually, Lord, each of us have done things that we need your mercy. We need your mercy every day. Lord, while we come to seek you this morning, sometimes it feels like we're alone. Sometimes it feels like we're just by ourselves, out in the wilderness, in the darkness. But I pray that you wouldn't hide yourself from us, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would show us more of your glory. Please don't turn us away in your wrath. You have every right, Lord, to turn away in your wrath, but you've given us salvation through Jesus. Lord, we need your help. We need salvation, but we need your help today. We need direction. We need wisdom. We need guidance for life. And Lord, we ask that you would save us. Many people have asked for this when they were younger, that you would save our, our souls, that you would save our lives, that we would have eternal life and heaven. But many people have not prayed that before, Lord. There might be hundreds of people watching online for all that we know that they're, they're watching this now and they're thinking about what that even means. But Lord, I pray that you would save our lives in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We know that he has conquered death and because of that, we have hope beyond this world. Save us, Lord. Lord, teach us your way in the time of crisis. We're facing a crisis now, but there's many crisis, crises going on in our world today, and we need you to teach us. We need to be students of the Messiah through this crisis, unprecedented times. And Lord, protect us from division. Protect us from division that creeps up even in our own congregation, in our own family, in our own, the people that we love the most, Lord, oftentimes the ones that can hurt the most. I pray, Lord, for uh, unity in our congregation, but not just our congregation, but across the church, Lord, around the world, that we would be unified, that we would have that singular message that salvation is in Jesus, so we have hope for eternity. I pray that the world would see us and that they would see that we are a people of hope. Not happy-go-lucky hope, but unity. Give us strength that we wouldn't fall to the temptation of lies and malice and deceit. We lift up these requests to you just like David, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we close for today... David's confident hope. Just like we just did, he has a personal prayer to the Lord, and then he ends with a reflection of hope. You know, in the last four years of teaching at Plumstead, I've had the privilege to go on three different mission trips with our senior class. And I get to go with my other uh, Bible teacher, my, my good friend, Matt Ogden. He's a wonderful mentor of mine. And on our mission trips, he always gives us this phrase. He always reminds us of, it's a threefold phrase that's really easy to remember whenever we're in a moment of crisis. 
He says, remember on this trip, even prepare now. Be present, be flexible, and be a blessing. When we get to the airport, he has another catchphrase. He says, a lot of times you have to hurry up and wait. But while we're hurrying up and waiting, be present, be flexible, be a blessing. That's really good advice when you're about to go to Timbuktu. But you know, it's really good advice every single day as well. To be present in your life. Realize that this moment that we're in is precious. Be a blessing. With all the talk and all the conflicts, it's easy to just get into that. Be a blessing for your life. And be flexible. I've had to say this a couple times as I prepare to go back to school. And you can pray uh, for me as well when you get the chance. And for our school, Plumstead Christian School, we're planning to, to open um, with a bit of a modified schedule, but we're planning to have classes. And that's new for me. You know, teaching amidst the crisis, being prepared to teach online or hybrid or in person all at the same time. Soccer preseason was supposed to happen tomorrow and it's been pushed back at least a week. These are things that it's a real moment of crisis. And I've had to say to myself, along with other people, be prepared to be flexible. I don't like that, but be prepared to be, be flexible. I need that as much as the next person. So it's true that much of life is a waiting period, isn't it? But most of good things in life come uh, from waiting. Look at David's hopeful conclusion. He says his confidence is that he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Is he being unrealistic? Doesn't he see the chaos of life? Does he not realize that life will kill the dream that he dreamed? If only David was living in today's culture, then he would really understand how bad it's going to get, right? As if being alone in the wilderness with an army of who? The king is about to kill you as if that wasn't bad enough. If he was here today, I'm sure he'd be a little bit more realistic, right? While peace, patience, and joy are fruit of the Spirit, we're not always known for these as Christians. However, the unapologetically consistent message of the Bible is one of unending hope. It is a message of hope. Despite our circumstances, despite real dangers and real fears, like the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus, uh, uh, Revelation teaches us, in the end, Jesus will win. I don't know about you, but especially during this crisis, I desperately needed that reminder today. Our hope is in Jesus, and we wait. We have hope that nothing done in Christ is done in vain. Hope that salvation in God's kingdom awaits all who put their faith in Jesus. Every house and every kingdom and every king that we have today on earth Every love that we've ever experienced, every song, every beauty, every gift that we've ever received, and everything that we have in this world, anything in this world that is good, is nothing but a shadow compared to the things that come in eternity and to the things that come through the power of our strong and mighty King. So be strong and wait for the Lord. Let's pray as we close. Father, we wait for you, we seek you, we seek your face, 
We seek your presence in this time of crisis. Um, we need you, God, and we wait for you. Thank you for the salvation that is guaranteed through the power of your spirit and through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we wait for you, Lord, for the fulfillment of all of your promises, for the coming of Christ and your kingdom. We pray that we would be people of peace and hope amidst the crisis. Help us as we wait patiently for you. In Jesus' name, amen.